Romans chapter 8. You can open your Bibles to Romans 8. And we're going to do the first part of the chapter today. And this is what Paul's focus is on. The title of the sermon is um, Slavery versus Adoption. Uh, slavery, to be a slave, means that you're owned as property and you have no rights, right? You have no independent agency. You belong to someone else. You're not your own, you're not your own person. Um, in, the, uh, in the Dred Scott court decision in 1859, right before the Civil War happened, the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that black people uh, were not citizens under the Constitution because they're property. And the court decision ruled that when the Constitution was written, when it referred to citizens, it couldn't have been referring to black people. It's this idea of slavery. You're not your own person. You belong to someone else. Um, Paul constantly talks about uh, us being in, you're either in slavery to Satan or you're free in Christ. And those are the two options. Doesn't matter where you're from, who your mom is, who your dad is, or, or, or anything else. You're either in slavery to Satan, to sin and to death. They sort of grow together, go together as this evil trinity, Satan, sin, death. Or you're free in Christ. And that's it. And Paul wants us to really get that if you're a Christian, you've been adopted. You've been adopted, and so everything should change about your life, your mind, your heart, uh, your, whole mind, your whole approach to life. It should all change, right? Everything should change, which is fine to say. There's a lot of things you, you, you can say and you like know, but it's, not, it's hard to make things real. Paul wants to make it real. So his focus here in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, it's really practical. Paul, if Paul were here, I think he would ask us, if you're a Christian, do you realize who you now are? Who you used to be and who you now are. And so what he wants to do is he wants us to get who we are. And then he wants to say, because God has changed you from the inside out, because so much has changed, you need to run away and keep running away from the old you. Right? You need to run away from the old you and then keep going, just like Forrest Gump, right? Just running, just always going away from who you used to be. Chattel slaves, slaves owned as property, like the evil Dred Scott decision uh, discussed, shouldn't want to stay on a plantation when they've been set free. They shouldn't. That's what happened to Dred Scott. He was taken into a state uh, where slavery was outlawed, and he claimed uh, he asked for his freedom because he wasn't under uh, he wasn't in his home state's jurisdiction anymore. That's what sparked the whole court case. He did not want to stay a slave because he realized who he was. He's a man. He's a human being. I don't belong to someone like a horse or a cow. I'm a human being. I don't want to stay that way. If you've been set free from slavery to Satan, sin, and death, and you've been made one with Christ, you don't want to be like you used to be. And so what does that do for your life? That's what Paul's going to talk about. Really practical, um, very, uh, it seems simple in our minds, but it's very important. It's very powerful. It's very practical. So we'll be in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. Um, most of our time will probably be spent on verse 3, which is like this concentrate of all this good, important stuff, sort of behind-the-curtain stuff that Paul wants to talk about. 
verses 5 to 13 are the uh, who are you question. Like if that's true, all the behind the curtain stuff is true. Well, then who are you? He wants you to start thinking about your life. He wants you to start, you know, not your eyes to glaze over, but as you listen to this, he wants you to start thinking about your life and your habits, your heart, your mindset. And the last part, verses 14 to 17, is God's encouragement to you. God's encouragement to you. So I'll pray and we'll dive into this passage. And uh, I hope you're encouraged uh, and enthusiastic and filled with joy as you see what God has done for you if you're a Christian and that you not just have it in your head, but it, it, you really feel it and own it in your heart. And that changes how you live and how you think. And that's what Paul wants today. So let's pray and then we'll do this. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Apply your word to our hearts uh, by your Holy Spirit as you see fit and help us to realize who we are, that we're no longer in slavery. We've been adopted as sons and daughters who belong to you and help that to change our life and our heart and our minds today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. He starts off with a beautiful sentence. I don't know if you've thought that much about all this sentence contains, but think about what this says. Therefore, in light of being set free from the law, from the law, from the, the need to, to, to earn salvation, to give your resume to God, because you've been set free from all of that in chapter 7. Therefore, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that real or are those just words? Do you guys know what white noise is? It's like the television in the old televisions when there's just like the static. You know, is, is this real? Are these just words or is it really real? You've been, if you're a Christian, you've been pardoned. You did commit the crime, but you've been pardoned because of Jesus has been punished for you. It's not that you're innocent. You did, we do sin. We have sinned. But in, if you believe in Jesus, you've been pardoned. You've been pardoned. There is now no condemnation. There used to be condemnation, like this legal judgment, guilty. Tyler is guilty. Like that used to be hanging out there. But if you have Jesus, you've been pardoned. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So is that just a thing that's abstract, like, you know, the Mariners could win the World Series sort of thing? Or is it really real? Do you actually believe it? That's what Paul wants us to believe it. He says, well, how is that? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit who offers you life, he's freed you. Freed you from all of the, the attempts in a million different ways to earn salvation or to find peace through your own ways, through your job, through your marriage, through, through whatever it is. All the different ways we try and find peace depending on who we are, where we come from. Uh, maybe you're a legalist who come from a legalistic background where you, you, earn, you, you find peace by doing all the things in the checklist. Or maybe you find peace in your job and fulfillment, but whatever it is you're trying to find to have peace, you've been set free from all of that because you're never going to have peace without Jesus. It's just this law of sin and death and you, you're, you're never quite arriving. And Paul says, 
You've been set free from all of that. The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You've been set free. Do we really realize that we've been set free? We talked about legalism um, in chapter 7 a lot. You're free from all of that. So does that actually impact your life or is it just a thing that you say in church and you sing about? Or is it real? Again, Paul wants it to be real. And here in verse 3 is where I want to I dig in for a minute and ask questions. Maybe I'll even give out candy if I don't hit someone in the face. But there's, so there's a lot of stuff here in, this, in verse 3. There's so much here. So this is what it says. For what he explains how you've been set free. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. And I'll save the last part of the sentence for verse 4. What couldn't the law do? For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, what couldn't the law do? So that's my question. What couldn't it do? What couldn't the law do? No matter who you are, what can't the law do for you? It can't set you free. You're never going to get there. If you're trying to find, find God by doing the checklist without love, you're, never gonna, you're always going to mess up the checklist. If you're trying to find through relationships, your spouse will not set you free, even though it's, the, even like, it's a, like a Meg Ryan romantic comedy. Even then, you will not be set free. Even if it's the best romantic, even if it's a sleepless in Seattle territory, you're still not going to be set free. Okay, uh, No matter what it is, you, the thing you're using instead of Christ to have peace, you can't get there. You can't get there. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did. God did. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't send his son as a sinful person. He sent him as Adam 2.0. Holy, able to choose able to choose. We were born already over here as sinners, but Adam and Eve, they were, they could choose life or death. They could choose. So they were sort of at this neutral point. They could choose to keep obeying God. They could choose to obey Satan and, and disobey God. Jesus came not as a sinful person, but as Adam 2.0, able to choose. And he always chose, as a person, he always chose God. He always chose God. He sent his son uh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, what did he send his son to do? What did he send his son to do? What's it say? To be a sin offering. If you have the King James Version, it says for sin, which is one way to translate it, but most versions today rightly talk about how Jesus came to be a sin. Uh, the, Jesus came to be a sin offering. The law was powerless to do. We can't get there on our own, right? If righteousness could come by the law, then Christ died for nothing. Galatians 2.21. So we can't get there. No matter which route we try, um, we can't get there. So God decided to take care of it himself. God sent his son to be a sin offering. 
What does that mean? How is Jesus a sin offering? Where is this sin offering thing in the Bible? If you had to find this sin offering idea in the Bible, where is it? What's a sin offering? Leviticus, right? In Leviticus, a lot of people don't read Leviticus because it's like, it's not that exciting. But it's in Leviticus chapters 4 through 6, this big grand object lesson of atonement with this, this object lessons of the animals acting as a, as a shadow of what Christ would do. So if you haven't read Leviticus, this is how it works. You sin, and so you have to go, if you sin and break God's law, you, go, you, go have, you have to go and uh, um, bring an offering to, to do two things. It needs to remove your guilt, so you're not guilty anymore, and it needs to restore the relationship, right? God is upset and needs to, there needs to be a sorry, right? I'm sorry, like an honest sorry. So your guilt is removed, and there needs to be a relationship that's, that's healed. And so instead of you dying, because this is a capital sin, sin against God is a capital crime, there's a substitute who can die in your place for you. You bring an animal of your flock, you bring the animal, the animal dies in your place, the blood is taken and is applied to the altar, and then your legal guilt is removed, because it's been paid for, not by you, but by a substitute. And then the relationships are stored. Everything's good. God forgives. Everything's fine. All that, all those rituals from Leviticus 4 through 6, all of that's a shadow of what uh, an object lesson, like a Lego, like a Lego thing resembles, you know, the, the Lego Millennium Falcon thing is a, is a shadow of the real Millennium Falcon, which is out there in hyperspace somewhere right now. Uh, th those things in the Old Covenant, they're like a picture of what Jesus would come and do for us to teach us so we'd get it, so we'd see. Jesus came to be a sin offering, a substitutionary sacrifice, a proxy, a stand-in for all of us. He came to die for our sins. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. But what's that mean? What's it mean that he condemned sin in the flesh? This is really abstract stuff, so it's, it's deep. What's he mean? What do you guys think it means? What's it mean that he condemns sin in the flesh? Turn that cha translate that to English. What's it mean? Okay. That's, I, think that's, I think that's part of it. He... How does his death condemn sin in the flesh? I guess that's the question. What's that mean? Like it's in English, but it's not in English. What is it? What's it saying? Yeah, he was perfect for us, but here it's talking about his death. It's talking about the sin offering. It's talking about his death. Okay, kind of. So what he's what he's getting at is it's as though it's as it's it's as though um, sin has been rebuked it's like by his death he condemns sin he 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 rebukes it he th he throws it out he condemned sin in the flesh meaning like in his body in his death on the cross he condemned sin so it's like picturing sin as a thing and jesus when he died said get out of here and threw it away i just actually threw the, the same the same piece of paper last week over there and i hope it was actually picked up but anyway uh jesus took sin and he condemned it and said get out of here 
and he threw it, threw it out of, uh, threw it into another dimension, so to speak. So it's like all this abstract stuff. But that's that's what Paul says he did. He condemned sin in the flesh. Sin is a capital punishment, but Jesus refuted the charge because he's not guilty of anything. And so, like, as our delegate, he takes sin and he condemns it and says, you have no power here. And he throws it away, and he throws it away for anyone who takes him up on his offer to repent and believe the gospel. He offers to assume the legal punishment for our guilt as a sin offering, like the, the animal assumes the guilt of the person in this object lesson in the Old Covenant, so that the person isn't condemned anymore. It's, 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 it's given to the animal who dies in the person's place. Jesus died in our place, and he, he assumes the legal punishment for our guilt only if and when we take him up on the offer to repent and believe the gospel. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. God did what we couldn't do. We can't be perfect. Jesus is perfect. We can't do any of that. God, God did by sending his own son, his own son. It's a personal sacrifice in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is a really, really hard um, sentence. And I'm not going to talk about everything it could mean. I'll tell you what I believe Paul is saying. And we could, I can talk more about it if you like. Why did Jesus... Why did Jesus come and can be a sin offering to condemn sin in the flesh and tell it to get out of here and take the train and, and get out of town? Uh, Jesus said that, did that, I believe, so that we wouldn't have to worry about being perfect. Because he's, he's already done that for us. He did it so instead of worrying about trying to be good enough for God, all we have to do is um, live according to the Spirit. Jesus did that, so all we would have to do is, all we'd have to worry about is to live by the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. And when we live by the Spirit, we're fulfilling the law's requirements. Yeah, that's, 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 what, that's what he's saying. Jesus has been perfect for us. Jesus has been punished for us. We don't need to worry about um, am I good enough? Am I righteous enough? Uh, I'm going to get in trouble when dad comes home. We don't, that's not the, that's not, that, do, that doesn't used to, that doesn't need to drive us like it used to before we became believers. Now, if you're a believer, whether you're Abraham as a believer or now, uh, all you have to do to fulfill the, to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law is to live under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. 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 So he's he's getting at you. You don't need to worry about doing about trying to be good enough about about the the 
counting on your own strength because we're not strong, we're weak people, we, we make mistakes. Instead, he wants us to focus on living according to the Spirit, which is what the next big section is going to be talking about. What he's getting at is that sin, meaning, you know, all the, and, and all the shame and the guilt and the baggage and any hint of a relationship with God being based on being good enough, all of that, all of those wrong ideas, it's all been put on the train and has been sent out of town and it's not coming back. So now that you've been set free from all of every motive for legalism, from every motive of I got to give God my resume and wait for and, and, and wait for a job offer. Now that you've been set free from all the trying to get to God your own way, whatever way that is, we fulfill the law instead to the extent that we live according to the spirit, meaning can mean a million things. But what it basically means is we love God and we love one another with our heart and soul and might. When we do that, because we're already children of God, because Jesus has done so much for us and adopted us into his family, all we need to do is to love God and love, love one another. Live according to the Spirit. That's what Paul's getting at. He's, trying to, he's getting at motivation. He's getting at, he's getting at a, a life that's not geared on, I need to do these things in order, to be, in order to be good enough. And he's focusing on, now that Jesus has brought you to the other side, Jesus has brought you from darkness to light because you can't do it yourself. Jesus has done that. You need to focus on, on just living by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not by effort, not by works, not by self-righteousness, not by whatever it is. Live by the power of the Spirit. And now he's going to focus on that in this next section. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according, in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So if, if all that's true, if you've if you've crossed over from darkness to light, before and after, old you and the new you, slavery to freedom, if all that's true, if Jesus has brought you from one dimension to the next, through that, you know, buried and resurrected, old and new, and that old dimension has lost its hold on you because there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if all that's true, then that should make a big difference in your mindset, your heart, your whole outlook. But would anyone who knows you know that? That's what he's asking. Would anyone who knows you know that? And so here he's going to talk about your mind. What is your mind fixed on? Those who have their minds set or their minds fixed on what the flesh desire, on the flesh have their minds set on that. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by or fixed and set and, and, and obsessed on the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. We all have ideas and habits and attitudes and values that rattle around in our heart, whether we're 80 years old or whether we're 20 years old or 14 years old. We all have all sorts of stuff rattling around. Whose are they? That's what Paul's asking. Whose are they? If so much about you has changed and there's now no condemnation, you've been brought from death to life, uh, Jesus has condemned sin in the flesh, Jesus has been a sin offering. If all that stuff is true, 
then your mind should be fixed and focused, your values, your heart, your everything should be fixed on the things of the Spirit and not the things of the flesh. And Paul's asking, which dimension is your mind fixed, set, focused on? And so he says in verse 8, to sort of wrap this point up, those, oh, I was supposed to say that earlier, but those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Those who are, the Bible, it actually says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's what it says in Greek. Uh, if you are, so it's, it's like you're metaphorically in one category or the other. You are either in the flesh or you are in the spirit. If you're in the flesh, you're in Satan's kingdom. You're in the dark dimension that this is trying to get across here. You're in the other portal, the dark portal, with despair where the law of sin and death still reigns. What Paul is saying here is really blunt. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So he's asking, he's saying, if your mind is set and is fixed over there, then you are over there, right? You are actually over there. You're, you're on the other side of this dividing line. And if you're over there, because your mind is an indicator of where your heart is, if you're over there, then you can't please God because you don't belong to him because you're on the other side of the portal. You're on the other side of the boundary line. You're in the other kingdom. Jesus takes us from the dominion of darkness and translates or transfers us. God takes us from the dominion of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1.13. There's a, there's, a, there's a transfer from one place to the other, from darkness to light. And if you are in the flesh, like located over there, then you can't please God. To which, to which one do you belong? Where is your mind Fixed. That's what he's asking. He's asking you to think, because he doesn't know. He's never even been to Rome when he wrote this. I don't know uh, what were your mind is fixed, but you know, and he's asking each of us to think, where is my mind fixed? Because this is a really, there's no wiggle room here, right? You can read legal statutes and find ways to find little holes. There's no hole here. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So he says, you, if you're Christians, you, however, are not in the realm, are not in the flesh. I'll just say in the flesh. I don't like what the NIV does here. You, however, are not in the flesh, but are in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of Christ lives in you. You're either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. There's a dividing line. This microphone is a dividing line. You're either here or you're there. There is no crossing over. There is no, I mix blue and I mix yellow and I have green. There is no mixing. Where is your heart? Where's your mind? You're either here or you're there. It doesn't mean you don't have bad days, bad weeks, but where is your mind fixed? If, yeah, he's, he's saying that if you're a Christian, you're, you, need to, you, you are in the spirit if you have the Spirit of Christ. 
So he says, if you're a Christian, the Father has transferred you and has brought you to another kingdom. You used to be there, but now you're here. And then there's the if, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Yeah, so what he says next in verses, um, in verse 12, he goes on and he says, okay, if all that's true, if all of that's true, if there's a before and after, you've gone through the portal from death to life, and if that's true, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. We have an obligation. So what does that mean? That's what he's asking. What, what difference does this make in your life. Talk is really cheap. What do your actions say? That's what he's asking. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you live. Again, it's really, really blunt. If you live according to the flesh, death is the result. Because you don't belong to God. Because you don't have his Spirit. And you know this because your mind is fixed over there on the other side. And so then, in verse 13, he says this, If you live according to the flesh, you die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Ah, okay. I keep thinking King James language. Wrong one. Ah. What does Paul say about life in the spirit? What are we supposed to do to the misdeeds of the body? What does he say? Put it, I, that's why I kept thinking, more. I was looking for the word mortify, but I forget that it's not in this translation. But uh, he says, you need to kill the deeds of the body. You need to kill sin. That's what Paul says. And that's, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit, not in your own strength, if by the spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body or you mortify the deeds of the body. You will live. So he says, if this is what a Christian life looks like, you kill sin. You, you want to kill it in your life. You don't like it. You're not happy with it. Are you happy when you sin? That's what he's asking. You should not be happy. You should want to get rid of it. You should really, it doesn't mean you don't mess up, but you should not like it when you sin. You should want it gone. You should want to kill it. You should use, want to use the Holy Spirit to kill it. And it's continuous. If you put to death, it's a continuous verb. It, it, what he's getting is if you, if you keep on killing the deeds of the body, you will live. If you keep on killing them. How many of us, us, not just me yelling at everyone, but how many of us Try to kill the sin in our lives, to put a stake into its heart. How many of us really put a concerted effort to trying to kill it, whatever it is? Paul's not putting a condition on salvation. He's describing the result. You should want to use the Holy Spirit to kill sin in your life because you don't want to be in the flesh. You, want to, you belong to this side now, so you want, to, you want the renovation to go on, right? 
You want the renovation to go. You don't. You, the, you, you, you have a dilapidated house and the roof is everything's broken. The roof is half off. You don't want to be fiddling with little things like repairing the baseboard when there's no roof. You, you want to take care of the stuff. You need to take care of the big stuff. If you're a Christian, you should want to kill the sin in your life. And it could be a million different things because we're all different and twisted in our own way. But you should want it gone. Like if you see a tarantula crawling on your shoulder, you should want to get rid of it. You shouldn't say, oh, look, a little spider. You want to get rid of it. It's disgusting. Kill it. De destroy it. Get it off you. That should be what we want to do with sin. We should be upset with ourselves, not in despair, but we should want to get rid of it. That's what Paul is saying. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And he says... For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. There are people who are really good at guilt trips. You guys know what guilt trips are? A guilt trip is when you manipulate someone's emotions by making them feel guilty to, so they'll do something, right? It's untrue, it's, it's cruel, it's fake. You're just manipulating someone. God doesn't do guilt trips. So God is not saying here, after everything I've done for you, what are you doing to show for it? That's not his attitude. That's not his heart. He's not trying to manipulate us to action like Merriam-Webster defines guilt trip so that you live in fear again. Um, that's gone now. There's now no condemnation for Christians. But what he's doing is he is encouraging us. So this message could be seen in two ways. If you're doing it the wrong way, it could be, Jesus has done so much for you. What have you done for him? That's not what God's saying. It's not what Paul's saying. Instead, he's encouraging us, saying, listen, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. You're not slaves anymore. You're not slaves anymore. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. No, that's not the point. That's not the, the, the vibe. Instead, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. So what Paul's doing is saying, listen, he just, in Romans 7, he just finished talking about his own struggles. So he's not some perfect person. But So he's saying here, he's like, listen, guys, we are his children. He's our father. He'll help us. He'll discipline us. He'll, he'll teach us. He'll teach us to, to continually put off the old person and put on the new. We were slaves, but now you've been adopted, and that's not going to change. Do you realize that? That's what he's saying. Do you realize you're, you're not slaves? You've been adopted. Think of, what, of who you are now. That's not a guilt trip. That's this is who you are. This is who you are. Look at what he's done. Look how much he loves you. The Spirit assures us that we're his children. And if we're his children, he goes on in verse 16 and following, then we're also heirs. And heirs of what? What's waiting for us on the other side of the river. You're heirs of eternal life. It's going to be okay. And he's going to help us. But he needs us, he needs us to set our minds on him and live according to the Spirit. 
because that's who we are. That's what's happened to us. Because all that's true, we can share in Christ's sufferings and we can walk by the Spirit today, tomorrow, and forever and a little more each day, loving God a little more each day. That's what Paul's getting across. This... That's what he's saying. Yeah, that's what he's saying. So what he's saying in this passage is, listen, because God has changed you from the inside out, you need to walk away and keep walking away from the old you. Paul said you have an obligation. Why are you still hanging around here? Why are you still hanging around on the plantation? Why are you still living like you're still a slave? Guilt, shame, fear. I haven't been good enough for God. Well, you can't be good enough. Uh, why, are you still, why are you still trying to do things the old way? He says, no, no, no. You're, you've been set free. You've been adopted. Um, there's now no condemnation. But he does say, now listen, guys, we have an obligation. If all that's true, we have an obligation not to live according to the Spirit. We need to put to death the misdeeds of the body. And so this is what he closed. This is what he wants us to get from this passage. A series of questions that each of us can think about in our own lives. What is your mind fixed on? That's what he's asking. What is your mind fixed on? Whose kingdom is it fixed on? Whose values? Whose glory? Whose dreams? What are you about? Right? There was a, a joke in the Navy about how, you know, you can, if you cut me, I bleed navy blue, which is, of course, ridiculous. But I mean, you know, what, who are you inside? What are you about? I don't know what color God is, but I mean, you know, what are you about? What's your mind fixed on? Are you being led by the Spirit of God? I didn't focus on that in verse 14, but he says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That's also a continuous present tense thing. Are you being led by the Spirit of God? Continually being led. I'm not saying, you know, for five minutes I wasn't, but I'm saying, you know, are, is the Spirit leading you? Is the Spirit leading you in your life? Do you feel love for God and His Son, Jesus Christ, driving you to want to do what He says? Do you want to be a good child for, the, for your Heavenly Father? Who's leading your life? Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Are you working? Do you want to work? Are you working to kill the sin in your life? Is, uh, is this a continuous battle or is it more like the Korean War? You know, the Korean War is still going on, right? There's just been a ceasefire. The war has never been over. Legally, it's never been over. It's never ended. It's still going on. But is it really going on? No, there's no war. I mean, you know, you know, sometimes people die and North Korea shoots artillery rounds across the border, but it's, it's, a cease, it's been a ceasefire for like 60 years. You and your sin in your life, is, it, is the war still going on or has just been this understanding stalemate thing going on where there is a ceasefire? You know, occasionally, one or the more, one, Satan or you will lob some artillery rounds at each other, but you know, pretty much it is what it is. You know, we're set. Things are good. Uh, are you killing sin in your life? That's, that's an important question. And the last one, what exactly, of course every Christian says, well, yes, I am. Okay, so number four, what exactly are you doing? Like, what exactly are you doing? And then if each of us hears this question and we can't actually think of anything we're actually doing, then we're not continually trying to kill sin in our life. That brings me to the handout that I gave you. 
And I'll close, I'll close with this. Um, there's a beautiful book about prayer called Handbook for Prayer by Kenneth Boa. Uh, I sent out an email about it earlier this morning with a link. You can buy it in leather-bound or paperback. It's a leather-bound book. It's like 100 pages long. It has uh, 90 days worth of prayers uh, set into the categories that are on your paper. I put two examples on there just as sort of a, sort of a preview. Um, if you're supposed to kill sin by the Holy Spirit, you can't do it yourself. You know, that sort of defeats the purpose of Jesus setting us free. Um, you need the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit help you kill sin? You should try prayer. Disciplined prayer. Have you tried disciplined prayer to help you have a healthier spiritual life so you will start killing the sin in your life? And this prayer isn't just 10 ways to say, God, help me with whatever. That's like a utilitarian thing. God is, God's only useful as long as he does the thing for us. These are just a whole, this is a holistic way to pray, to pray to God in a meaningful way that will help you be spiritually healthy. And then the death of sin, the further killing of sin will result. Adoring God. Read the scripture, pause, and pray thoughts that come to your mind from that scripture. Category two, confessing sin. Read the, the two or three verses there. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and then confess what comes to mind. Renewal, asking God, intercession, wise statements from God, thanksgiving, these things. Uh, do you have a prayer life that's focused on your relationship with God? And then when that is repaired or fixed or is just changed up to a new way, um, then your spiritual life will improve and you'll start killing sin in your life. You'll start being better You'll, you'll, you'll have a healthier relationship. Just like if you do nothing but sit on the couch all day long, you feel unhealthy. You feel not, you feel blah. You just feel bad. And then you start being a little more active or working out or doing stuff. And it, it's not just in your mind, you've, you have a better day. You feel better. You have more energy. You're healthier. That's not fake. It's real. And then so much, there's so many trickle-down effects when you start doing things and you don't just live on the couch all day long. Spiritually, it's the same principle. You start praying to God in a disciplined, regimented way, like here uh, on the page, and then you'll start confessing sin. You'll be more conscious of the Holy Spirit in your life. You'll have, the Holy Spirit will have fuel with which to work. So I, I put two examples on here. Pray through these. This takes 10 minutes, perhaps. Perhaps 10 minutes. Pray through these on day one or day two, whatever days you want to make day one and two. And then consider whether you feel closer to the Lord, which will then result in a trickle-down way of you wanting to kill sin in your life, being more aware of it, uh, being closer with God. And the thing about buying the book on prayer I sent the links out in an email. If you want a copy because you can't afford it or whatever, I don't need to know the reason. Just say, hey, buy me a copy and we'll get you a copy. I don't care what the reason is. Just say, Tyler, I'd like a copy. I'll get you the copy of the book. And uh, this is practically how we begin to make everything that Paul says be real in our lives. Are we killing sin in our life or not? What exactly are we doing about it? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to realize who we are, that we're no longer slaves. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been adopted as sons and daughters who belong to you. Help that to make a difference in our lives and help us to live in light of that. Help us to know who we are.
and help it to give us joy and peace and help us to want to live according to the Holy Spirit more and more every day and lead us to find a solution to help us do that in a disciplined and regimented way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.